You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I know it's been a while since we've had any daring nautical adventures here on the show, but I promise you we are getting some seaborne shenanigans sooner rather than later. Just around the corner we've got William Dampier, Alexander Selkirk, Woods Rogers, and a whole lot of privateers that are about to take over the story. But imagine that you're a 16-year-old boy living in England. The world has been at war for about as long as you can remember, and now war has broken out again. It was looking more and more likely that you might have to go fight on the continent. I'd suspect that characters like Edward Teach and Ben Hornigold were paying very close attention to the war. But there was another future pirate who was doing a bit more than just paying attention. In fact, there's a very good chance that she was there. This is episode 303, A Tale of Two Marks. The historical accuracy of what we're going to be talking about today is nebulous at best. If you're looking for hard historical truth, the best I could really give you would be a very unfulfilling paragraph that starts off with something like, We know very little about the early life of Mary Reed. Because we know very little about the early life of Mary Reed. But that doesn't mean we can't kind of piece together a story about who she might have been. I'll be relying on a few sources here, and I'd like to let you know who the most important are up front. 
First of all, there's Captain Charles Johnson's account in a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates. And that's a big one. That's the starting point that everybody works with. Because for the early life of Mary Reed, that's really all we've got. But then a lot of other later historians will kind of cobble together a possible early history of Mary Reed by doing a deep dive into what life was like for young women at the turn of the 18th century, especially those in a situation like Mary Reed's. So I'm going to be looking at Pirate Women by Laura Sook Duncombe, I'm going to be looking at Pirate Women by David Cordingly, and a big one here is Pirate Queens by Dr. Rebecca Simon. So this might not be a strictly historically accurate depiction of what Mary Reed's life was, but it's an accurate depiction of very much what it could have been, with a few details snatched from Charles Johnson. Part of the reason, though, that we have so little about the early life of Mary Reed is that she was born poor. You know, not some Dickensian street urchin searching for scraps in the gutter, not somebody getting into the seedier side of life like prostitution or thievery. She was just regular poor. She would have been born in London around 1685, but that's about all we've got on her. We don't know her mother's name, and certainly not her father's name. More than likely, Mary Reed would have been born in Wapping, the seafaring community on the north bank of the Thames. And I'm going to work with some of what we talked about back in episodes 280 and 281, Interesting Times, Part 1 and 2. That's when we talked about the early lives of a few of our Golden Age pirates. You might even kind of consider today's episode part three. In that episode, we discussed the possibility that Charles Vane was also from Wapping. We don't know that to have been the case, but it's possible at the least. A lot of pirates did come from Wapping. It was a rough, poor, hard-scrabble neighborhood filled with sailors, and their families, and all of the merchants and craftsmen that kept their ships sailing. I like to imagine here the possibility that Mary Reed grew up knowing Charles Vane. He would have only been five years older than her, so if they did indeed grow up near one another, they almost certainly would have been at least acquainted. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Charles Vane, but considering the large number of pirates that did come from the region where Mary Reed was almost certainly born, when she, in a few years' time, when she gets to Nassau, she's probably going to meet some people she knows. And many of those people are going to be in for a shock about her identity. But as we said, we don't know the names of Mary Reed's parents. We don't have any church records or civic records about the circumstances surrounding her birth. But if we work from what Captain Johnson gives us, we can come up with a fairly cohesive story. At somewhere around the age of 20, Mary Reed's mother married a sailor. And marrying a sailor was something that English women at the time knew was probably a bad idea. Sailors tended not to come back home. And when they did come back home, they often came back carrying a host of venereal diseases. But... Sailors often made pretty good money, and in a neighborhood like Wapping, where everyone was a sailor, you didn't have a whole lot of other choices. 
Now you may remember that way back when I fantasized that John Reed, a companion of William Dampier's on board the Signet, that he might have been Mary Reed's father. And that's not the case here. But John Reed could, maybe, possibly, have been the sailor to whom Mary's mother was married. It would be a shocking coincidence, but I don't have any hard evidence to disprove it, either. The timeline would more or less match up here. See, shortly before John Reed would have had to depart London, if he even lived in London, we don't know that he did, but shortly before the beginning of the voyage that would take him around the world, Mary Reed's mother got pregnant. On that voyage... Wherever Mary Reed's mother's husband was going, he died. Now that's not uncommon at all. As Rebecca Simon points out in Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed, fully half of all women who married English sailors wound up widowed. So that's not at all any kind of evidence that the unnamed husband and John Reed were one and the same, John Reed didn't return from his voyage either. You know, just saying. And Mary Reed did get her name from somewhere, almost certainly her mother's husband, this now deceased sailor. But that deceased sailor was not her father. When Mary's mother gave birth to her first child, it was a boy. She named him Mark. Now, there wasn't any real system in place to properly inform widowed women that their husbands had died at sea. If he'd been a sailor in the Royal Navy, you'd have a better chance of getting word, if he was important enough for the Navy to remember, anyway. But for almost every English widow married to a sailor, their husbands just disappeared. The first sign usually came when the money stopped coming. England had a fairly advanced international colonial banking infrastructure that allowed men to send money to their wives back home. When a ship would stop off in a place like Port Royal or Boston or Bombay, most sailors would have the option of buying notes of exchange in their wife's name and sending those notes back home. Once those notes reached the wife in question, they could be traded for hard coinage at the Bank of England or really any money changer. The rates of exchange were, of course, extortionary. Often the wife would wind up with less than half of what the husband had sent back, but it was still a lot safer and a lot more sure than sending coins back home. So when these notes of exchange stopped coming... Mary's mother would have known that something was amiss. As the weeks dragged into months and still no word arrived of her husband, it would have become clear that he was not coming home. Now, England was a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to the rights afforded to widows of disappeared sailors. In some of the uh, less progressive societies in Europe, a place like France, for example, those widows were just out of luck. Without a corpse, or proof of his death anyway, those women would be considered legally still married. Forever. So, no husband, no help, no income, and also no ability to move on. 
In England, though, depending on the jurisdiction anyway, most widows could eventually get remarried, usually after something like a year and a day had passed. So remarriage for Mary's mother was very much on the table. She was still young and healthy and capable of having plenty of kids, but for whatever reason it never happened. Which is pretty surprising. You know, for women of the time, marriage was pretty necessary. Your legal rights were significantly diminished without a husband. For example, you would be barred from many forms of employment that were open to married women. You know, weaving, cooking, selling fish even, all of those were off the table without a husband who could, legally speaking, hold the reins. What was left for unmarried women were the less desirable jobs. You could be a barmaid or a chambermaid or really any job that has the word maid in the title. After all, they were jobs for maidens and not married women. Beyond that, well, there was prostitution, but that's pretty much it. Mary's mother did not want to suffer the indignity or the poverty or the real possibility of abuse that would come with any of those jobs. Luckily, though, her in-laws were willing to help support her. Rather, they were willing to help support their grandson, young Mark Reed. They didn't want him to grow up in abject poverty, so every month they sent along a little bit of money to help them get by. A few months later, Mary's mother would meet a handsome young sailor sometime in 1684. Dr. Rebecca Simon suggests that she may have been looking for a new husband when she met him, but of course it could have just been much more simple than any of that. She was young and lonely, and dashing sailors with very strong hands could be quite charming. Maybe Mary's mother and this young sailor were in love, or maybe not, but soon enough Mary's mother was pregnant again, and her young sailor departed for his next voyage. Around this time, though, Mary's in-laws, who had been sending her money, and would continue to do so for the sake of young Mark, they left London. They moved out into the countryside, which was kind of unfortunate. They were really her only support structure at home, and now, aside from, you know, maybe a few friends, she didn't have anyone, no family at least. So to find herself once again with child must have been terrifying. See, a widow who went on to take a lover was seen as despicable. An as-yet-unmarried woman was given a little leniency. You know, they gave up their purity and would almost certainly go to hell, but that doesn't mean they're going to be despised by their neighbors. After all, we all know that young women are sex-mad agents of sin who will get up to all manner of depravity without the strong hand of a father or a new husband to sate her carnal desires. But a widow, a woman who had been married, well, those carnal desires were expected to have been sated, and she was expected to know better. But now, Mary's mother was very shortly going to be showing the whole world just how depraved she really was. In 1685, she gave birth, this time to a little girl that she named Mary. 
Mary Reed, almost certainly after her deceased stepfather. But this put her mother in quite a pickle. When the world found out about her sinful love child, her in-laws were unlikely to continue supporting her or her grandson. Moreover, the allowance they were already sending her certainly wasn't enough to support both children. It was barely enough to support one. It was a tough spot to be in. All manner of scurrilous accusations have been hurled at Mary's mother over the years. She has been depicted in absolutely the worst light possible. See, if she were a deceitful, hateful, sinful woman, it might help explain how her daughter turned out to be Mary Reed. The worst that I've ever seen usually in a few very old pirate histories, suggests that, well, here, with a new child, Mary's mother was in a bind. She could only support one of them, so she had to make a choice between the two. Because she was, as is clearly evident, a lust-fueled monster who was still enraptured with that dashing sailor, she chose his daughter as opposed to the legitimate son that she had with her now-deceased husband. Those histories will usually tell you that once her decision was made, she abandoned her son, or maybe left him outside to die of exposure, or maybe just killed him. One way or another, Mark Reed, still just over a year old, died. Now, of course... I don't believe anything like what those old writers said about Mary Reed's mother making a choice. It's honestly pretty disgusting, some of what they wrote. No one else believes that kind of drivel either, not these days anyway. Every modern author that I've read suggests that the boy's death was natural, a simple tragedy. He was still just over a year old, and London was filthy, a lot of children died who lived there. So no one claims these days that Mary's mother would have done anything that horrific to her child. But also, nobody can deny that Mark Reed's death did simplify her position. Her son died when he was still very young, and it's likely that nobody in her family had seen the boy since... Well, since her grandparents left town months back, when he was still just a newborn. With her firstborn dead, Mary's mother could pass off her newborn baby girl as Mark, and she could continue to live off of that allowance from her in-laws. It wasn't much, it wasn't enough, but it would keep her and her daughter, Mary, alive. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Now, I'd like to address something here. There is a school of thought these days that to call Mary Reed by her birth name, Mary, would be calling her by her dead name. That is to say that there are those who believe Mary Reed was transgender and should rightfully be called Mark. And you know, there might be something to that, but I'm not going to do it that way. It always feels a touch dishonest, even sometimes a bit manipulative, for modern people to try to declare that someone from the past has a certain identity. At least when... It doesn't seem like there's enough reason to do so. You know, we can't go back and ask Mary herself how she felt about any of this. And if there were some surviving letters out there where she wrote about how much she wanted to be a man, and aren't skirts just awful and boobs are the worst, right? Well, maybe there would be a conversation to be had. But those letters don't exist. Had Mary Reed lived in a different time, who knows? Maybe she would have been transgender, or more likely kind of a non-binary or gender-fluid identity, but Mary Reed grew up in the late 17th century. And nearly everything we have, everything we know, about Mary Reed comes from court proceedings. Court proceedings that would absolutely not have recognized any identities other than strictly female, but she recognized her name, Mary Reed. As such, I'm going to be using feminine pronouns and calling her Mary. Still, though, it's not that cut and dried. You know, from birth, Mary Reed was treated as a boy, as Mark. She grew up wearing boys' clothes, and everyone around her believed her to be a boy. All of the social cues that she picked up just from being alive would have been distinctly masculine in nature. So when I picture Mary Reed later on... I picture someone very much like Anne Bonny from Black Sails. A woman, but someone who's very tough in a masculine sense of the word. Someone who's never been really comfortable in her own femininity. And someone who very likely is struggling all throughout her life with an attraction to other women. But of course all of this is just my interpretation of her. If you have another, that's fine, and there's no reason to get mad about any of it. The question I have, though, especially early in her life, is, did Mary Reed realize that she was a girl? I imagine that at some point, even when she was still pretty young, she must have realized that there was something different about her compared to the other boys. 
and it would have been a conversation that I don't doubt Mary's mother would not have relished to explain why she was so different, so I have to believe that there must have been some understanding on the part of Mary about who she was and what was going on here. You know, if she didn't know that she was a girl pretending to be a boy, she could just blow the whole thing wide open. So she must have had at least a simple understanding that she had to pretend. On the other hand, though, Dr. Rebecca Simon writes in Pirate Queens, and to be clear here, she's writing in a hypothetical what-might-have-happened tense. Dr. Simon writes, quote, When Mary turned 13, her mother sat her down and told her the truth. She was not a boy, and she was not named Mark. As she had begun so young when her mother put her in disguise, Mary had no memory of being a girl, and certainly did not know how to live as one. End quote. And I think that last bit, that she did not know how to live as a girl, is important to the story of Mary Reed, but for the rest of that, I'm not really convinced. As a former boy myself, I remember just how often someone in our little gang of neighborhood ruffians would... Well, look, maybe it's kind of gross, but I'm just going to talk about it. When you're in a group of boys running around getting into trouble, at some point, somebody's going to have to take a pee. And young boys aren't always the most circumspect about that particular action. You know, we would have competitions about it. We'd see who could pee the farthest, who could pee the highest, and oh, if it snowed, well, we'd have art contests. So I can't imagine that, unless she lived a very sheltered life, there wasn't some point in her life when a young Mary Reed saw something like that and said to herself, Huh. That's weird. And then her mother would have to have that difficult conversation. Whether or not she really understood herself to be a girl pretending to be a boy when she was still a small child, pretty soon puberty was coming on, and one way or another, the differences between Mark and the other boys were pretty soon going to become more and more pronounced. Once again, Mary and her mother found themselves at an impasse. When Mary was 14, her grandmother died. The allowance that they had been living off of for 14 years now would no longer be coming in to supplement her mother's meager income. Mary, at 14, was going to have to begin to earn her keep. It's possible that, at this point, Mary openly identified as a girl and spent some time in a much more traditionally feminine role, that's what you've got to do when you get a job, right? More than likely, she would have gotten a job as a maid in some middle-income household. Alternatively, though, Laura Sook Duncan suggests in her book Pirate Women that Mary may have passed herself off as a lady's footboy. A footboy is similar to a footman, you know, kind of a personal assistant and page, but a footboy usually worked for a woman serving to her and tending her needs. Now, many women in the lesser aristocracy, the gentry, and the upper middle class, they would choose a fairly inexperienced young footboy that could be properly trained to serve her. These boys were often chosen for their good looks. 
You'd hire a pliable, comely youth who would be trained up properly, and soon enough they'd grow into a handsome young man that could serve the lady however she pleased while her husband was away. Whatever lady hired the young Mark Reed must have seen something in the boy's feminine features and lithe figure that she quite liked. And we can imagine that lady, eager to sample her new page, forcing Mary into a very uncomfortable situation. At some point, she probably wanted to make sure that she was getting what she paid for, and of course, she wasn't. The footboy turned out not to be a boy at all. On the other hand, if she was serving as a lady's maid in a feminine role, it seems she didn't much care for skirts. One way or another, though, shortly, just a few months after taking up this new job, Mary ran away. She joined the Royal Navy. At least, that's what happened according to Captain Charles Johnson. We don't have any record of a Mark Reed serving in the Navy at this point, certainly no one as young as Mary. But as a 14-year-old girl, it would have been pretty easy to pass herself off as a slightly younger boy and get a job as a cabin boy. And the Navy would have been the right place to do this. They had pretty strict rules about the uniforms worn by virtually everybody, but cabin boys as well. One of those rules was the requirement that unless it was crazy hot, they wear a coat, which of course would have been good for Mary. Time aboard a Royal Navy ship would have given Mary Reed a chance to learn the ropes, literally and figuratively, but she would have learned a lot more than that. Of course, there was a military discipline in the Navy, but also a first-hand knowledge of the brutality routinely meted out by the Royal Navy. As a cabin boy, she wouldn't have been likely to be flogged at the mast, but mistakes or disrespect would have seen her smacked across the face, maybe bent over a table and lashed. All of which, of course, would serve as an excellent education for a pirate on the make. Mary would have been in the Navy in the final years of the Nine Years' War and likely after the war ended, she would have continued her service. England did not demobilize their navy at all. If anything, they expanded it. However, as this 14-year-old grew up into a slightly older young woman, it would have been harder and harder to hide her identity. So in 1701, or maybe 1702, Mary Reed left the navy. Perhaps she was found out. We don't really know why. There's no record of Mark Reed leaving the service. But we do know that she chose to join up with, this time, the army. And it's quite possible that she just saw a new opportunity, maybe a better opportunity, than the Navy. Now you might think that a woman joining the army in 1701, that's insanity. And maybe a little bit, but it's way more common than you might think. The military life was often, quite often, much preferable to suffering the indignity of being a woman in England. I mean, imagine you're a fairly poor woman trying to make your way in 1700 London. You've got a few choices. You could get married to, you know, some fishmonger or a sailor, or you could become a prostitute. Or, if you're very lucky, you might find work as a maid, and if you're very 
very lucky the master of the house would only stop at groping you. None of that was ideal. The other option was to pose as a boy and join the military. You get three squares a day, you get paid, maybe not much, but it's something, and if you get flogged, it's still better than the alternatives. Later on in the 18th century, there would be a writer who noted that there were so many women serving in the English army that they should have their own battalions. And none of these women were serving openly. They were all pretending to be men and marching along with the other soldiers. So Mary signed up. And she was far from alone. There were a lot of other soldiers signing up for the army in 1701 and 1702. The recruiters were working overtime in every city in England. Mary would have been 17 years old when England finally declared war on France, and the War of the Spanish Succession began. When Sir John Churchill, Earl of Marlborough, sailed with his English army over to Flanders to begin his campaign, down at the very, very bottom of the ranks, almost unnoticed, marched a young infantryman named Mark Reed. Next time, for really real this time, Mark Reed is going to join her fellows on Marlborough's march through the Rhineland. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, everybody who has recommended this show, and all of our supporters on Patreon, without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.